No one ever comes to the village of Kreb. Ever. Then one spring the mayor sees a car in the distance. He sees another, and another. Suddenly everyone is coming to Kreb. No one knows why, but there must be a few euros to be made. Check out Leg Lich, the new comedy by Philip Ogley. Available now in print, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon and other retailers. There's a common refrain you may hear when enjoying a haunted house story. A potentially fatal narrative flaw that seems so obvious when a cynic says it out loud. Why don't they just leave? When things go bump in the night, there are whispers in the dark, objects start flying, people can't sleep at night. Why don't you just leave? Why would you stay? Why would you put up with it? Just go. Is that how moving house works? Can you just pack up your things and move on? Is it that simple? I think we all know that it isn't. Moving into any property comes with commitments, contracts, upheaval. A home is supposed to be the place you feel safest, where you feel most relaxed, comfortable. When that place becomes hostile, threatening, dangerous to your mental and physical health, where do you go? Few of us are blessed with second homes, or with the financial resources to write off the loss, or pay our way out of it. For the time being, you can seek shelter elsewhere, maybe, from friends or family, or in a hotel. But eventually, inevitably, you will have to go back. You don't have much choice but to return, knowing that whatever it is that torments you is there waiting for you, as if you'd never left at all. What do you do when your only choice is to live with the unlivable? You just have to try and endure it. Hope that that which troubles you and torments you keeps you awake at night may disappear, go away, spare you for just a few hours here and there. Perhaps it will get better over time. Perhaps it may even disappear. Perhaps it won't be so bad. Perhaps it'll get worse. You just have to hope. That's about all you're left with. Hope that you can withstand it while you plan your escape, knowing that it will take time and you'll be stuck with it day and night, night and day. You can escape a haunted home. It's just a question of how long you can survive on the brink before you get pushed over the edge. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast where we delve into the new ghost stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. Many of the cases I've covered in the new ghost stories podcast have been life-changing. Experiencing something that should be impossible has a unique impact. It shakes people's foundations, makes them question the world they know, their place in it, and what might lie beyond it. It's not something that's easy to put behind you and walk away from. And yet, for most, normality has inevitably reasserted itself. No matter how strange one day, week or month may be, the time that follows will be reassuringly ordinary. Life does go on, and we soon get caught up in all that's usual and necessary for living day to day. Most of the subjects I've interviewed for New Ghost Stories cases have found a way to move on with their lives. Some at great cost, sometimes with scars that will never really heal. But they have gone on living nevertheless. 
When I've met with subjects, back when meeting people was something we all did all the time, I would often notice a very familiar pattern of behaviour. We would begin with a shake of the hands, some light conversation, slowly we'd build a rapport. Then the story would begin, and a sort of shadow would fall over them. Their eyes would glaze over a little. They would avoid eye contact, looking to the floor or to the table. They would whisper. They would be oddly still. And then, once the story was over, this haunted look would mostly pass, if not completely. Recalling painful events is never easy. The wounds may feel fresh again, but by the time we parted, normality was already returning. All things considered, these are the lucky ones. Some people never really get to move on, they get stuck. When a mystery becomes unsolvable, when questions can't be answered, they can't let that go. It becomes an obsession. Their experience drove them all the way to the edge, and part of them has never really come back. In this episode and the next, we're going to meet two people who have never recovered from their experiences. They remain in a poor state of mental health, reliving the trauma over and over. Talking to these people is very different. They don't sit still. They don't glaze over. They look you in the eye and they talk quickly. They don't have trouble remembering, because it is always on their mind. They are in a sense stuck in the past. Normality has never been restored. This does create challenges when it comes to interviewing and corroborating their accounts. But I have strangely found myself more determined in these cases to go the extra mile and put in the extra legwork to see if these tales can pass my standard criteria for publication. And I suppose that's because people who are pushed to the margins, those are the people who are the least likely to get to speak. The easy thing to do is to turn away. These interviews were never comfortable, but I didn't want to walk away. They were not always likeable, but their experiences did count for something. I don't know whether working with me helped them in any meaningful sense, I hope that by having at least one person listen and take them seriously, they were provided with at least some little reassurance. It is clear, however, that a great deal more attention and expertise would be required for them to experience any meaningful recovery. I present for you now the first of those two cases. It's case number 78, and it's called Studio Flat. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. I wasn't naive. I knew when I moved to London that I wasn't going to be able to afford a mansion. Not on a runner's salary. I should have gone for a house share, but I was too anxious about moving in with strangers, and my experience of house shares at university wasn't great. But I'd hoped that by moving out far enough I'd be able to get at least a one-bedroom place. I soon found out that wasn't going to happen. Not if I was going to make Dad's money last, which I had to. I didn't want to be a runner for long, I wanted to progress. But I didn't know how long that would take. In the end I had no choice but to take a studio, and not a very big one. At least it wasn't one of those with a fold-down bed. But with the bed, it wasn't much bigger than a hotel room. Except that this had a kitchen, three units with an oven, a sink and a microwave screwed to the wall. Nowhere to dry the dishes. 
fridge next to the wardrobe, ancient television with no digital signal. There was a fold-down table next to the fridge, giving me a nice view of the wall if I wanted to sit and eat. I should never have agreed to it. But I'd seen so many places, many worse, and the estate agent put a lot of pressure on me. It fitted into my budget even though they wouldn't budge on the damn price. I was supposed to send down for my things from home when I settled, but I made no plans because there was nowhere to put anything. There wasn't much space for me, never mind my things. It's just temporary, I kept telling myself. Stay a year, get another job and then move. Maybe I'd meet some people, move in with them. And it's London, there's so much to do, you just need somewhere to sleep. I don't know what I was thinking. You can't step foot out in London without hemorrhaging money. It costs a king's ransom to even take the tube. It was buses for me all the time. And that made the days at work even longer. And it's horrible taking the bus. So many damn people. It's not a great job being a runner. They expect a lot and give you a little. They can be long days once you've started shooting. You're amongst the first there and the last to go. And some of the people. I suppose you get bad types everywhere, but these people. They were just so stressed out and demanding. And rude and full of themselves. There were days when I was treated like shit. You get up at 4.30am to get there for 530 and then maybe not leave until 9pm. Then you'd spend the whole day buzzing around, fetching coffee, moving cables, going shopping, pushing idiot extras from one place to another, and then getting an earful if they wanted to go home or were getting tired. I was lucky when I'd get a thank you, and that wasn't very often. The work was so hard, and I was so alone. I thought I'd make friends. Obviously I knew it'd take time, but I was such a doormat at work swallowing so much shit from everyone. Nick, he was the popular one. He was the other runner, so much more confident and chatty. People liked popular Nick. I did my work okay, but people preferred Nick. He was more matey with everyone, and he was the one who was going out to lunch with producers and editors. I did sometimes, but only if I overheard them making plans, or one of them was feeling generous. Not that I could afford to go out anyway. Nick was so damned together. Breezed through the work. Even when he said he was tired or hung over, he didn't sound like it. I knew it would be Nick who'd get the first leg up. Either at the studio or offered some good freelancing job. I worked really hard, but that doesn't really count. Not in the real world. It's the talkers always get ahead. It was so stressful there. Just one day ran into the other. And I couldn't get to sleep at night because I was so wound up and thinking about what I had to do the next day. I only dreamt about work. It was horrible. I wondered whether I'd made a mistake, a real mistake. I was tired all the time. It was so miserable. I might have felt differently if I had somewhere nice to come home to. But the flat was like a prison cell. Like a gone day release, but I had to come back to get locked back in at night. That's all I was doing, going to work, coming back, and then staring at the walls. The same walls. I was so exhausted when I get home most nights. I barely had any time to clean the place. Or take my clothes to the laundrette. I was surrounded by dirty clothes, dirty dishes, takeaway packets. I was living in my own filth. And it was so small I would get claustrophobic. I remember once coming home drunk and wondering whether I could piss from one end of the flat to the other. I didn't try it, thankfully, but I bet I could have done it. I couldn't even open the fucking windows. There was a kebab shop downstairs. It stunk in the evenings. And the noise on Friday and Saturday nights. I used to take long walks on the weekends just to get out of the place. At least there are things to do for free in Central, though I didn't mind working weekends, could always use the overtime. 
Oh, that was even more exhausting. I could never win. I thought about jacking the job in. But then what would I do? And I was on a year's contract for the flat. I knew I should have gone into a house share. At least I wouldn't have been on my own. It would have been easier to make friends. I was in an industry that was about networking. And I was terrible at it. I didn't want to admit that I was a failure. That I'd chosen a job I was bad at and entered into an industry I'd started to detest. I didn't want to admit to my friends or my family that I'd made a mistake. Some of those condescending arseholes, they'd been so snide when I said I was moving, giving me all kinds of stupid warnings and talking about things they knew nothing about. I wasn't going to give those small-town arseholes the satisfaction. No way! I wasn't going to let them laugh at me. But I started to lose it. I was burning out and I was miserable. And that's when the shit really hit the fan, when things really started to go batshit crazy. I was sat alone one evening in my room watching the TV. It was just some junk, a soap opera or something shit. It was dark outside. I was thinking about getting an early night while I had the chance. That's when I noticed a light come on. There was just a parking yard down below, a few battered cars and some bins for the kebab shop. But across from that was an apartment building. Grey old, brutal architecture. I thought it was dead, a derelict. I didn't think people lived there. But there was a light on, parallel across from my room. I could see right into that room. The curtains were open. There was a woman there. The building wasn't abandoned after all. I watched her. I couldn't help it. She was a looker, a fox. I had to look. It was a living room. I could make out some furniture, a lamp and a picture on the wall, not much else. She was a bombshell. Incredible figure. The sort of girl you don't see around very often. And totally dressed to impress. Like she'd just been somewhere expensive, somewhere glamorous. Cleavage you could drop coins down. Then the guy shows up. He's suited and booted. Yuppie business type arsehole. Good looking. Stubble. Hair combed up and back youngish. It looked like they just got in. She was rummaging inside her handbag which was on a table. He was undoing his jacket. He came up behind her. Hands on his waist looking her up and down. She turned to meet him. She took his hands. They looked into each other's eyes and then kissed. Couldn't help but sneak a peek. But God, I wish I hadn't. They did the passion and embrace thing for a few minutes and then stepped apart. She unbuttoned her shirt quickly. She tossed it on the table next to her handbag. He took a step back and loosened his tie. She stood facing him, bra exposed. He grinned at her from ear to ear. Then he hit her. I practically leapt off the bed. He hit her right hook and she went down. I crashed to the floor. It happened so fast I couldn't believe it. Still grinning, he leant down and hit her again and again. He took off his tie. I watched as he put it around her neck. He pulled it hard, crouched down on top of her. And he... he strangled her. I almost vomited, I almost screamed. He strangled her like a lunatic, huge smile on his face. He enjoyed it, he was loving it. I grabbed my phone, I called the police. I didn't know the building's address, but I told them what happened and where I lived. They asked me to count the floors, and it had to be the first or second floor, probably second. The wait was unbearable. It was well over half an hour by the time the police finally came over to my room. I'd just been sat waiting. There was nothing I could do, twiddling my thumbs while they took their time. The room was dark now. The light had gone out while I was on the phone. I kept watching the room, hoping the light would come on, that the police would get there, that maybe she was alive. She was probably a prostitute, high-class escort. That would explain the look. He looked as if he could afford one, and it might explain why he thought he could get away with it. Killers looking for women with few ties who won't so easily be missed. When the police had finally knocked, I asked straight away if they caught him. 
They said they were having problems finding the place. I went over what I'd seen with them yet again. These plods. They just couldn't seem to figure it out. And they were wasting so much time. A woman's life was at stake. They asked me if I'd definitely seen a light go on. I said, yes, of course. How else would I have seen what happened? That's when they looked at each other. I asked them what the problem was. They said the building was abandoned. Had been for years. There was no power. Even if two people had somehow broken in, there was no power. A light couldn't have come on. That's impossible, I said. But they were sure. They'd apparently checked with the security firm who monitored the place. It was abandoned and had been for more than five years. They were waiting for someone to arrive with keys. But they couldn't see how anyone could have got in or how I could have seen the light on unless it was a torch. But I said it was definitely a room light. It had to be. They didn't believe me, did they? They started to question me. Rather than look for this guy, a murderer, or the girl who was probably dead. They thought I'd lost it. They could see the bags under my eyes, my pasty complexion, the state I was living in. They'd probably seen it all before. Guy goes stir-crazy in his 700 a month rat hole. Probably happened all the time. I tried convincing them that I wasn't making it up. That I hadn't hallucinated the whole thing. What could have put that sort of thing into my head? But the more they asked questions, the more reasons they gave for why it couldn't have happened the way I said it did. And the more I insisted, the more crazy I sounded. I started to question it myself. If you went mad, you wouldn't know one thing from the other, would you? They left saying I should get some rest and call a doctor. I kept on at them until they promised that they'd still check out the building. But I'm pretty sure they didn't bother. I remember the guy saying I should air the place out when they left. Bastard. I was in a state of shock. I didn't know whether I'd seen a murder or gone crazy. Both were really fucking serious problems. Couldn't relax after that. Had to go over and look myself. I'd never been there before. It was right around the corner, but I'd just never had reason to. It was as the cops had said, it was boarded up and fenced off. Big steel wire fence around it. You could get through it if you were determined, but why would you? Neither of those people looked like they climbed a fence or squeezed between wooden panels. I didn't know what to think. I felt sick right in my stomach. My head was pounding. There was nothing I could do. I just had to go back to my room and go back to normal. How do you do that when you've just seen someone get murdered? I lay awake all night staring at the ceiling. It was as if every time I closed my eyes I could see the whole thing replaying. The look on her face when he smacked her down. The look on his face when he strangled her. The determination, the pleasure. It made me want to throw up. So much for my early night. I felt like absolute shit the next day. Even worse than normal. I had to get out of that damn flat, but I had nowhere to go. It was a Saturday. The weather was bleak, spitting down, pissing it down. But I couldn't stay in that room. I just started walking and kept walking. I made it into Hammersmith then along the river, then to the museums at South Kensington, where the kids and the tourists were too loud. I found a sheltered bench in Hyde Park and rested there. I've been walking for over four hours. Seriously. What did I do next? I just had to go back again, didn't I? Nothing else to do. I could have gone further into London, but the crowds just made my head hurt. All I had to eat all day was a bad supermarket sandwich. If I'd been smart, I'd at least have brought a book with me. It was dark again by the time I got back to the flat, wet, cold and miserable. I waited a long time before I even went through the door. I got back inside and studied my miserable surroundings, the same four walls, and decided 
I had to do something about this place before I went totally crazy. I did my best, tidied up, got rid of some of the rubbish. I had to make the place more livable. It was what it was, but I had to find ways to make it better. I made my dinner, laid on my bed and started to think about what I could do to dress the place up, make better use of the space. It was a distraction for a while, but I knew, I really knew there was nothing I could do about it. It really was what it was. A fucking rat's cage. I fell asleep in front of the telly. There was nothing worth watching as usual. I was so tired I mustn't have been able to think about the murder any longer. But that didn't last. I woke up for a little before daybreak. That's when I saw it again. There was a light in the window across the yard. The same light, the same room. My eyes zoomed in like a camera. It was happening again. Man and woman back in the same room with the light on. And it was the same man and woman. It was happening again exactly as it had happened before. He watched her. They kissed. They embraced. She started to strip. He hit her. I felt like I could hear her scream. It was like a blazing migraine. I clutched my head between my hands. But I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help but watch it again. I don't know why. It's still so clear in my memory. I can still see his smile in my head. Those same swift, merciless, vicious moves. He was so quick, so precise. He knew what he was doing. And he did it with such confidence, such expertise. I knew there and then this wasn't the first. It couldn't be. He knew what he was doing. He'd done this sort of thing before. This guy was a real killer. I rolled off the bed and reached again for my phone. But by the time I'd reached it and dialed 999, the light was off again. As the voice on the phone spoke to me, I said nothing. The whole thing had stopped, vanished. I hung up the phone and just stared. There was no one in that building. I checked it out myself and there were no other lights on, it was abandoned. And what I'd seen, it was exactly the same as I'd seen the night before. The same in every detail. Had I gone mad? I don't know. I drew the curtains, but still found myself facing away from the window. I couldn't work it out. What was I seeing? When did it happen? And why was I seeing it? Why me? It was the woman who was the man I didn't know. And I didn't know how to find out. Surely if the police knew something about this, they'd have said something, wouldn't they? I had the horrible feeling this was something that had happened a long time ago. That someone had got away with murder, and now I was seeing it replayed. But why me? And how? Jesus, how? Can you tell me? I still don't know how or why. What I do know is that it really started to drive me over the edge. We were hitting the winter months and the clocks went back. That meant there were days, lots of days, when I barely saw sunlight. It was dark when I got to work and dark again when I got out. There was no sunlight at the offices, not in the TV studio. It was only when I was on an outdoor shoot, or I managed to get out for lunch, did I see any natural light. But the weather was so shit, what I mostly saw was clouds and rain. And then when I did get home, I started to get scared to have the curtains open. I got home very late one evening after doing lots of shopping for a food shoot. I went straight to cooking, and when I turned away from the kitchen, I saw it happening again. The action had already started, but I managed just to shut the curtains before the attack. But my head started pounding anyway. Even though I hadn't seen it, it was still affecting me. I kept the curtains closed all the time after that. As it was always dark when I was there, that wasn't a hard thing to do. Not that it stopped me from seeing it in my sleep, but playing it in my head. And in my head there were all the sound effects, all the noises I could imagine. The screaming. And I was helpless to stop it. One night after a few weeks of the curtains being always closed, I just peeked between them, just to see if it was still happening. I pulled them apart just a little, 
and it had already started. I saw him hit her again. I turned away, put my back to the windows, but the pain went straight to my head. I slid to the floor. It was horrible. I cried. I cried all night. After that, I couldn't take the risk anymore. The next weekend, I got some cardboard boxes, and with tape stolen from the studio, I covered the windows. I blocked the whole thing out so I didn't have to see that horrible scene again. So long, daylight. I started to feel like a vampire, a night creature. I hated that studio flat so much. I hardly spent any time there. I couldn't take the claustrophobia, the stuffy air, the smell. The same four walls. I became like a beggar, travelling from place to place. The studio flat became like the doorstep I returned to each night to sleep. When I finished work, I would go to find somewhere where I could hang out for free and not be bothered. The Royal Festival Hall, the BFI, the Barbican. The best places were the ones where you could hang out for hours without buying anything, and no one seemed to mind or notice or care. I would eat food, sneak from work, scour supermarkets for out-of-date food. Occasionally, I even chanced a bit of shoplifting. Then it was the museums at the weekend. You'd have to buy things, and they were usually busy, but I found my way to some of London's more obscure ones, and I could afford to treat myself a little, just occasionally. It's amazing what you get used to. I probably looked a mess. I was a mess. But after a while, it just became my thing. I read books, lots of books. Picked them up for pennies from charity shops. Nick moved on to another job. I knew he would. I remained, apparently not good enough to progress, but at least not so bad that they could fire me. Those wonderful people. Nick was replaced by Riz. We got on. He was okay. We hung out a few times. I was always trying to find ways to get him to stay out longer, hang out more. I think I put him off by being too keen. Maybe he thought I was gay and trying to chat him up. But he was okay with me. We still hung out sometimes. I'd stopped really worrying about work. Turns out there were worse things that could happen to you. I'd seen them. When you've seen someone be repeatedly killed, it matters a lot less upsetting some agency queen when you get them a latte instead of an espresso. My goal every day was to find ways to stay away from the flat as much as possible, to find other places to go and ways to occupy my time. It was hard with me not having much money. But I got used to it. Like I said, it's strange what you can put up with. After a while, I even stopped dreaming about it. Stopped hearing the voices I'd made up for the man and the woman. Eventually I was able to sleep without hearing them. But I kept the windows covered and the curtains closed. It wasn't like I was happy. I was never happy. I was just able to cope. Able to keep a lid on it. It got to almost Christmas. And while others were at parties enjoying themselves, I was at a loose end still and worried about going home to see the folks. What was I going to say to them and my so-called friends about my time in London? What nice things was I going to say about my shaky career and my lack of friends and my lack of sunlight? But Christmas came early one night. I had moved on from the V&A and found myself wandering out beyond Chelsea into Fulham when, stroke of luck, I found a £20 note on the pavement. Seriously, it was the best thing that had happened to me in months. I went to a pub, treated myself to a pint and a portion of chips. Luxuries. It was freezing outside. I wanted the warmth too. I sat in a corner near a pool table. It was pretty quiet despite the time of year. Not many people there. I put some money in the pool table and started to play by myself. I was about halfway through the game. I was doing pretty well, but I started to fight back. I was holding the cue about to make a pot when I looked across the bar. And I saw him in the flesh. The killer. The murderer. It was him, no doubt about it. He was older, grey in the temples. 
The vision I had seen of him before must have been a good few years ago, but unmistakably it was him. I had no doubt I could never forget that face. I felt weak at the knees. I dropped the cue and flubbed the shot, but that barely registered. I found the killer and he was alive. And he was here, with another woman. Time had not dulled his looks or his sense of style or his taste in women. Although I doubted this one was another prostitute, she looked more regular ordinary. I mean, good-looking still, but not dressed like a high-class hooker. Down to earth, more everyday beautiful. He was smooth as ever, charming the pants off her. Making her laugh, making her smile. She was playing with her hair. That's a sign they're interested. I put down the cue. I lost interest in the game. It wasn't important. He was a killer, and he was with another victim. Jesus, I didn't know what he was going to do with her. I sat myself by a corner table, where I could watch discreetly without much risk of being seen. They had food brought to their table. He shrugged to her when it arrived, as if to say it wasn't bad, it would do. Obviously not up to his usual standards and tastes. What was I going to do? I had no evidence. The police thought I was crazy. Anyone would think I was crazy. But I knew this man was a killer. And this woman was in danger. What would you do? Shrug your shoulders, say, what can I do and leave? I couldn't do that. I had no choice but to stay and watch them. This one was a redhead. That surprised me. I thought he would just go for blondes. That'd be his thing, his style. Would that mean this one was safe? Who knows? She could be another escort for all I knew. I was just guessing. I sat for an hour watching them. They were almost sickening the way they were looking at each other, giggling and laughing, playing footsie under the table. And all the while she had no idea what she was dealing with, what kind of animal he really was. Suddenly they got up to leave. I downed the last bit of my pint and had to rush to get up and go after them. I had to follow them. What choice did I have? They didn't take a taxi, thank God, or else I'd have never been able to catch them. Instead, they took a long walk. A long walk in the freezing cold. I followed at a distance. Tried to stay far enough behind so they wouldn't see me. But they were so wrapped up in each other that they wouldn't have noticed me anyway. They stopped partway through the journey to get off with each other next to a bus stop. It was really difficult to find a way to hang around and wait to see where they were going without drawing attention to myself. I pretended to tie my shoelaces and then waited by a bus stop across the road, worried that they might suddenly jump on a bus themselves but I guessed correctly they were stopping for a kiss and a grope before moving on. If only she knew. I wasn't even sure where we were. We walked for over twenty minutes. I didn't know the neighbourhood at all. And then they suddenly left the road. Just when I wasn't paying attention, they disappeared. Shocked, I ran forward to where I thought I'd last seen them. They'd gone off the street down some steps. He had a basement flat, under one of those beautiful London houses you could never dream of being able to afford. I just caught sight of the door closing behind them. That was it. She'd entered his lair. She was in the killer's house. What was I going to do now? This could be it. He could be planning it now. Deciding when to take her off guard. He had his tie on. He could be loosening it now right at this very moment. The living room light went on, but the curtains were closed. I could barely see outlines of people moving in there. Perhaps they weren't moving. Perhaps it was just the furniture. Perhaps I was already too late. I had to do something and do it now. I thought about calling the police. Yes, I would sound mad. I would sound crazy. But if they came out here, spoke to him, spoke to me, maybe they'd get suspicious. Maybe he'd let something slip. Maybe they'd connect him to the old derelict building where he must have lived once. No, that was crazy. Best I might talk them into coming down here. I could, like, maybe say I'd seen him strike her. But then I began to panic. How long would that take? It could be happening in there right now. He might already be strangling her. She could even already be dead. There was nothing for it. I went down the steps to the door and thought about breaking it open. 
but it looked pretty strong. No, I couldn't do that. So I banged my fists on it. I banged the knocker, rang the bell. Then I shouted, help, please, it's an emergency. I thought I saw the curtains twitch through the corner of my eye. I heard movement from behind the door. I had a sudden idea. I leapt quickly up the stairs back to road level and then climbed the steps leading to the door of the flats above. When the door to his flat opened, he stopped out to look around for who'd knocked. In just those seconds, I threw myself over the rail and landed right on top of him, feet first. That knocked the wind right out of him. He didn't see that coming. I'd never been much of a physical guy, but I gave the fucker everything I got. I was on my feet faster than he was, and I was smacking him around the head with my fists. Then the girl came out, and obviously she doesn't know what's going on. So she grabs me by the back of my coat and tries to pull me off him. That gives him chance to get back at me. I'm calling the police, she screams, as he's back on his feet trying to throw me about. Call them, I reply. Stop this murdering bastard. You crazy fucker, he says. We've started to kick up quite a bit of a racket, so people are coming out of their flats. Obviously the neighbours know this guy. Turns out it is his flat, so some of them come to help as we're rolling around, scrapping on this little bit of patio in front of the window. They grab me and they pin me down, but I don't care. I don't care what happens now. I can see it in his eyes and he can see it in mine. He knows that I know. And as I scream to the people around me as they pin me to the ground, and I scream that he's a killer and that he was going to kill her, I can tell that he's scared. There's a little twitch in his eye, a little delay before he answers back. He just fucking attacked me, he pleads, playing innocent. But he knows, he knows that he's rumbled. The police come along and I tell them how happy I am to see them. I tell him I'm going to tell them everything, that he'll never harm another woman. He's done for. I get arrested and taken down the local station. And I tell them everything to hell with it. What does it matter if they think I'm mad? What does it matter if they think I'm crazy? There are lives at stake. It doesn't matter what happens to me. It really doesn't. They threw me in a cell overnight to cool off. I didn't sleep. I just waited. I just had to hope that maybe he'd let something slip. Or just maybe some smarter than the average cop thought he'd just check up on some of the things I'd said. Fat chance of them showing that kind of initiative. But who knows? Eventually they drag me out again in the morning. They put me in a room and tell me, as much to my surprise as theirs, that he's not going to press charges. I couldn't believe it. They said he was taking pity on me, because I obviously had problems. I had to try hard not to laugh my ass off. He didn't want the attention. He didn't want the trouble. It was as big an admission of guilt you could have hoped for. Not that the stupid police noticed. I told them so, but they were so fucking oblivious to do my best not to smile ear to ear while they gave me my warning and my lecture. I needed help. I needed to see a doctor. They were going to check up on me with social services, make sure I saw help. Like heck they were. Once I was out of the door, I never heard a damn thing. Of course they told me to stay away from Mr. Anderton. That's what he went by. But of course I couldn't do that, knowing what I did about him. I'd saved one girl, perhaps only briefly, but others they'd get hurt. People like him weren't going to quit. When I got out, I stood vigil outside his flat. I didn't care about being discreet. I wanted him to know that I was watching. I had to still go to work during the week, but afterwards and on weekends, I wait there for him. He seemed to have vanished. Had I really scared him off? Then just after a week, a for sale sign appeared outside the place. I really had done it. I really had scared him off. It felt good for a little while, just a little. I was conscious that the killer was still free and on the loose. I tried to track him down, did everything I could. 
I even tried to convince the estate agents I was a serious buyer. I toured the house, tried to get them to give me his details, but without the finance paperwork, there's nothing I could get. There's really not much more to tell after that. I went into media buying instead of studio work. That was stable, more boring, or more stable. And I did my year in that damn flat. After he disappeared, I tore away some of the cardboard to see whether the murder scene would stop. It didn't. It just kept playing on over and over. And that's because he's still out there. I wonder if whoever moved into that room sees it now, whether it drives them crazy too. Because he's still out there somewhere, and he'll kill again. People like him don't quit. Whenever I walk the streets, I look out for him. I've tried to Google him, Facebook him, but I haven't found him. I hope to God someday I will. Maybe then I can stop dreaming about it. I may have got away from that flat, but I still get the dreams, and I still hear the screaming, and I still wonder, who else has he killed, and how long is it going to be before he kills again? Though the British police have made no information public, my research suggests that no crime has been recorded to have taken place at the location the subject has identified. Further investigation also suggests that no criminal, matching the description the subject has provided, has yet been charged with the type of crime he describes. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please support the podcast by leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. Today's story features in the book 14 New Ghost Stories, which is available from Amazon, iTunes, and other book retailers. This podcast is written, presented, and produced by David Paul Nixon. If you'd like to read the latest new ghost stories, visit my Substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com and you can find out more about new ghost stories at my website, newghoststories.com. To find out all the latest from me, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at newghoststories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, it's a tale of violence and revenge. And it all starts with a drip, drip, drip. The New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Horrified Mag.